Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, man, I already feel like uh, this has been great for me this morning, just to, uh, just my week. Um, this was good to already just feel like I've went back and, and thought through and, and worshiped and able to uh, just get still before what he did for us in his incarnation. And so uh, it's great to see you this morning. We are uh, talking about this season, the word vintage, the word vintage. Most people think of vintage as old. Um, Vintage can be old, um, but vintage really carries with it words like this, timeless, it's classic, it's quality, it's, it's choice, it's vintage, right? Um, even beyond a little bit of retro, vintage and retro get confused. Vintage is just, man, it stood the test of time or it is going to be around for a long time. It's just a, it's a quality thing. It's a vintage thing. And so we are trying to understand from the, uh, the seasonal story, what are some vintage truths that pop up out of that um, just to remind ourselves this is beyond the the details of the story beyond the you know the narrative what is it trying to tell us what is it trying to show us what things can we latch on to that um, just give us this classic timeless truth to always 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 believe in and hold on to so this week, I'm like asking people, who has vintage collections around here? Anybody got vintage stuff? Um, I shared Laurel and Hardy last week, you know, and um, I actually uh, came across one that I, I, I honestly think is uh, really interesting. Um, it's kind of funny when you start asking these questions, how things pop up. And we have somebody in our congregation who... Um, since they were 10 years old, has collected hand fans. You're saying, what's the deal with this? Is this vintage or not? And I got to be honest, I did a little hand fan research. Um, You know, in our culture, hand fans aren't, look at this, man. Isn't that cool? That is old, man. That is, look at some of this stuff. I mean, this is like, if you could hold this right now, this is like heavy-duty hand fan material. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of lead paint involved here too. And so I probably am putting myself at, at risk. But just going through this, I mean, there are probably hundreds of these things in here. Look at this one. Isn't that cool? I really don't want to fan myself because I'm on Facebook Live and that I'm sure that image will get captured somewhere. <laughs> Pastor Chip... Uh, fanning himself with some kind of, I don't even know what this is. It's like dragons or something. But anyway, um, the more I got to reading about hand fans, I mean, this is a big deal, especially in Oriental cultures. And there is a whole thing behind this. And um, uh, this is just vintage stuff. Time, I know for us, I don't really, check this one out though. I kind of identified with this one because I've used the newer version. So look at this thing. It actually has a, I can't get it, come on. Ah, 
That's what you had to do, man. Now you just have those things, your kids are like, Anyway, just, just something kind of weird, and, and, and I don't mean that wrong. Anybody know who collects these in our congregation? Anybody know? T- just take a guess, somebody. I can't. Can't you Me? <laughs> yeah, actually, guys, this is I brought this from home. But <laughs> no, Rebecca Carrier, since she's ten years old, started to to check these things out and buy them. And she would go into stores with her mom, and her mom would be like, "Just ask them if they have these things." And and then she would uh, she would uh, try to talk them down in price. And I'm telling you, you go through here and someone who is not by any means a hand-fanned aficionado didn't even really think about this world existing. I actually had fun looking through these at the different designs and different stuff. But this is vintage to certain cultures. I mean, this is important. You go in their museums, you go in their, uh, you go in their uh, you know, historical places, especially in your oriental cultures. These have a lot of meaning, a lot of history. And there's a timeless there is a uh, classic quality to that. And that's what we're trying to grab onto with the Christmas story. You know, uh, uh, last week, as we begin to read the story, as if you were to open up the book of Matthew and you start to read about this whole genealogy, you begin to realize that something really important is being communicated to us, even in the genealogy. Not only was it, hey, this is where he comes from. He's legit. He's con- he comes from Abraham and, you know, getting everything in order for the Jews to buy in to where his bloodline was. But in the middle of that, intentionally, the Spirit of God is sharing with us details about Jesus' line that is telling us something about who he is. And there's a classic vintage truth. And at the heart of that is it's, it's people like Rahab, and it's people like Bathsheba, and it's people like Ruth that are telling us something greater is going on that we need to understand about this whole thing and our God. And so the vintage truth, just out of the genealogy, is this, that redemption is at the heart of Christmas. And so this morning, you know, you're dealing with a story that is, all of us could stand up here and tell the story, right? I am trying to tell a story that you already know. And, um, but just really pondering and thinking this week, and I'm going to be honest, this week was one of the hardest weeks I've ever had here thinking about a sermon and just getting traction with something and, and uh, just feeling right about it. But I, I really feel like there's something that we can see in the middle of this story that probably maybe you're familiar with, but I want to remind you once again of what uh, the essence, the truths that can be taken from this story. But I want to begin with the video that kind of sets the scene for us this morning.
You see, I think for all those years and for so many in that, in that culture, they knew that he would come. They knew Messiah was coming. Everybody knew that. It is how he chose to came that is vintage, that is classic, that is timeless. We are looking for him. We know he's coming, but we totally miss him because of the way he did come. And I think the way that he came is something that we need to really grab a hold of because it is absolutely God communicating to us some timeless, classic truths for us to hold on to about him. You know, as you begin to read this story and as you begin to uh, understand from a, especially in Matthew, a Jewish perspective, but even in Luke to a Greco-Roman Roman, Roman, Roman congreg- uh, uh, audience, um, you know, when he begins saying that the big deal is this one that's born, and it starts by talking about a woman or a girl and a young man from the town of Nazareth, you're already starting to have some questions in your mind. You're already beginning to be surprised. Because, I mean, you're talking Nazareth. And, I, and the, only thing I can, uh, <laughs> the only thing I can equate this to in my own life is when I moved here, I moved from an area and a church that was in Mackey, Indiana. How many of you have ever looked up Mackey, Indiana? Uh, I would imagine some of you did when this whole process was going down, right? If you look on the map in Indiana and Mackey, I mean, you're talking uh, 106 people. It is nowhere. You've never heard of it unless you've been there, unless you know somebody from it. I mean, it is so obscure. It's literally you're driving down a state route, and all of a sudden there's about 50 homes on the right side of the state route. There's about 12 or so homes on the left side. You literally drive through and there's a blinking yellow light to tell you to at least slow down because there is one road that people are coming out of, okay? And that's it. Literally, within 30 seconds, you have went from seeing it to already having passed it and it's in your rearview mirror. It's nowhere. It's nothing. It's a blip on the radar. That's Nazareth. That's Nazareth in this day. I mean, you're talking about 10 acres of land. That's it. That was Nazareth. I'm I'm trying to figure out how many acres we sit on. Um, I don't think it's quite 10. Some of you farmers might be able to tell me that. It's five. Think about that. The whole town was on 10. We sat on five. There's about two or 300 people in this little town. And so as you begin to uh, understand that Messiah is coming into the world, this is the story of the one, the king. You're introduced to this obscure place, the surprising area. The focal point of the world is going to be this. I mean, it's a conservative town. It's probably, honestly, a little behind the world's trends. It's uh, honestly, it's probably 15 or 20 years behind uh, the fashion and the, uh, the, uh, 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 the comforts, the amenities of that time. Um, things from Jerusalem and things from other bigger cities haven't quite trickled down. Or there's a few people in town that have those things, but not everybody yet. And it's a town that um, in its thinking, it definitely was not a progressive town. It wasn't a cutting edge place. It wasn't, uh, it was just 
good old small conservative Nazareth. In fact, it had a very it had a, a reputation of, of uh, definitely blue collar, but even maybe below that. Remember, as you read the gospel narrative, uh, the one disciple, my mind slipping me, uh, when, when uh, his his uh, one of them goes to him and says, "Jesus is coming," and he's from Nazareth. The disciple goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the reputation here. But this is so intentional. This is God. This is what he does and what he wants us to understand. You got a young man, probably 25. You really didn't consider as a male marriage until you were about 25 in that culture in that time, which is interesting because they didn't live very long, right? Um, there's no doubt, I've been thinking about this this week, but you don't ever see Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old, right? No one recorded, uh, he was not around during his ministry. Um, he's not around at the cross. And understanding the type of man that he was, there's no doubt that the only explanation for Joseph being absent is that he had already passed on. I mean, he's 25 when this is all going down, right? And, and uh, men in that culture, the life expectancy was so short. Probably if you lived to be 50, you were doing well then. And so Jesus, by the time he's 30, Joseph is 55, he's already died. Just a little sideline here. I've been thinking about this this week. Jesus knew what it was like to be at the death of a parent. He experienced that grief no doubt he was at a time like that. That's just been an interesting, a new thought for me to comprehend this week. Jesus, no doubt, probably was there when Joseph died and he experienced that. What, what a God we have. What, I mean, that walks through everything that we experience and understands our, our human condition. But that's, that's uh, Joseph at about 25 years old. Now, no doubt, he has met this, this girl who probably, <laughs> who's probably 13 or 14 years old, maybe 15. Talk about robbing the cradle, right? Um, some of you, no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> ben, I won't say anything. I won't reference, no. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, I mean, you're talking like 25 and a 15-year-old, but that was the common thing right? It's into this, this world Jesus chose to come. Probably they met at a festival. Probably they met at, um, uh, uh, or maybe just around town. Um, and no doubt he began to notice her. And he began to have uh, probably these conversations with her. Uh, you know how that goes when you're dating. And, and, and in this kind of context, it probably was, it was uh, um, very brief, um, not in depth. They definitely weren't going on uh, dates, you know, to the movies and dinner. Um, just very, um, very brief, but yet there was something about, you know, that, that that whole thing was going on. And at some point, Joseph went to his parents and said, hey, I, I see a girl I want to marry. And so the custom of that day was Joseph's parents would then approach Mary's parents. And they would sit down and they would begin to talk about this. And truly, the parents decided if this was good or not. The parents put together the marriage contract. How does that sound, guys? 
way different, right? And so um, they, they'd work it out, and I don't know what was traded or what was, you know, there was some, um, uh, some dowry or something like that. But um, no doubt after they had, they had came together with a contract, it was official. They'd have a glass of wine to make it official. And uh, now Mary and Joseph are engaged. That's a huge deal in that culture, a huge deal. Engagement can only really be broken by divorce, by divorce. And so Mary and Joseph are, I mean, they have already made these steps. They are together. They are going to be married. But it is this as we read, and I want to read some of the narrative for you before we start to talk about it. In Luke, in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it would begin this way. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was, was Mary. Um, that, that all has a lot of significance, um, but not really for today. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. You see, all through the Old Testament, she's a good Jewish girl. She knows all the Sunday school stories. She knows all the stuff. Most of the time when an angel shows up, it's a fearful, frightening thing. I mean, it is a, what is going on? This is going to change. And most of the time, there was some judgment maybe that would accompany it. And so she's troubled at his words. Again, a 14, 15-year-old girl from nowhere with nothing, no pedigree, nothing as an angel appearing to her, and she's greatly troubled. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be a child and give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own age, and she was said to have been barren. Remember, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And Mary answered this way, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. You see, for us, this is so common. So we read it. We read it. We, we, we read it to our kids. We celebrate it. Um, it seems so exciting. It's so miraculous, right? This is, this is unbelievable. Um, uh, wow, you know, even uh, certain churches lift her up to such a, a pedestal that she's become deified because of this, this kind of scene, this kind of setting. But honestly, for Mary, 
in these initial moments, um, this was far from being exciting uh, or uh, it was just surreal. Because all of a sudden, she now has to explain (laughs) and has to comprehend what is going on. Just in that video, think about the fact that she realized, I've got to somehow communicate to Joseph that I'm pregnant, and yet I'm still a virgin. I mean, think about that. Yeah, right. What are you not telling me? What are you trying? Is this, is this the way you're trying to explain your behavior? Is this your story? Now listen to the, to, to the narrative with Joseph. Matthew chapter one. We get a little picture into Joseph's world as we begin to read verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mar- his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her mother, husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave, her, he gave him the name Jesus. I want to tell you, that just understanding the dynamics of this are something that we really need to grab a hold of. This has been romanticized. This has been captured in such a light that we don't think it was a big deal, but it was a huge deal. It would not be any different than in our culture, the stigma, um, even though maybe it's lessened from that culture, of, of a teenage pregnancy of a, a pregnancy that's happened without a marriage. Uh, in that culture, I mean, um, she was done. She was done. Her reputation was tarnished. And in fact, we read that Joseph, um, I mean, he didn't believe her. He did not believe her at first. He, he, he pondered what he should do about this. He had three choices, really, in that culture. He could marry her quickly, so that people might not figure out. <laughs> Get married fast enough. Well, man, that was just like a seven-month pregnancy, right? Can't, you know, he, he could do that. He could divorce her publicly and save his reputation. Um, wouldn't have been a big deal at all for him to do that. Um, or the third thing is he could send her away quietly. Um, just get her out of the picture. Uh, just move her to a different wherever so that 
Um, it was just kind of out of sight, out of mind, pushed under the rug, kind of down the road, and I'm not sure what happened to her. And She moved to a different town kind of deal. And Joseph had actually come to the point in his thinking that because he wanted to be compassionate, because he was a just man, it says, because there was, there was character to him, he thought, you know what, I'm not going to humiliate her, um, but you know what, I just can't buy this story. I don't believe it, and I'm not going to marry her because I don't feel like she's, she's been virtuous. Honestly, that's where he was at. And finally, he decided to just put her away privately, send her off somewhere else, and try to restore his reputation in that community again. That's where he's at. Think about what you would have to deal with in this. This is what God decided to do when he came into our world. This is the kind of scenario he created. This is the kind of life that he was going to uh, engage with. These people, and he was going to put them in this kind of situation. And I just want us to remember that Mary and Joseph um, were absolutely planning this life. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. Um, it, we're, we're, we've, we found each other. We're going to get married. We're going to start a family. I'm going to continue. I'm going to develop my business. They had their plan in place, no doubt. They had already started to take steps toward that. And God seriously interrupts their plan in a way that actually brought on them some scandal, some discomfort, some, uh, uh, just all those things. That's what he brought on their life. And as I've been thinking about them and, this, and these dreams, and Joseph finally, as we watched on the video, uh, finally had to have an angel in a dream tell him that he needed to do this before he said, yes, I get it. I see what you're doing. But I want us to recognize some things. You know, with Mary... Mary trusted, I would say this, you don't have to understand the plan. Um, you don't have to understand, how did I word that? Sorry. You don't have to understand the plan to trust that God has a purpose. You don't have to understand the plan of God to trust that God has a purpose. I want you to think about Mary. And Mary decided in the middle of this, her life being turned upside down, uh, her reputation at stake, all of these things, Mary trusted, Mary trusted despite. She trusted despite. She, detrust, she trusted despite the fact that it was going to be difficult. It was gonna be difficult. Um, she was gonna face harsh, harsh judgment, um, it was uh, going to be a lot of misunderstanding. She was going to put her family um, through some hardship. She was going to uh, have the difficulty when she said, Lord, may it be that Joseph might leave, you know, all this stuff. But she trusted despite the fact that it was going to be difficult. You know, as I think through her story, even getting to Bethlehem, I'm sure that along the way, um, the, the reality of this difficulty 
became more and more apparent. I mean, I, if I were her, I would have thought, well, you know what? If this is true, and obviously it is, I'm pregnant, and the way that happens hasn't happened with me. This has got to be true. She's got to be starting to think, well, man, there's got to be different criteria with this, right? Maybe I only carry him for two months. Maybe I get out of the nine-month deal. I just do two months. You know, maybe um, it's going to be an easy pregnancy because it's the Son of God. I mean, uh, you know, uh, maybe I get a heavenly epidural. You know, just, and all along the way, it doesn't get any easier for her. She's dealing with the, the societal pressure. She finally, Joseph, she gets through that difficulty with Joseph, and they get married. And for five months, they're together. And yet, it doesn't get easier because of the whole census thing. And all of a sudden, she is facing the reality of now having to travel in a third trimester of pregnancy. Um, she realizes that because of that, she's going to face childbirth alone without her mom or her sisters or a midwife or friends. She's on her own in the middle of this. You know, um, instead of being able to labor in a comfortable environment, she's laboring on the back of a donkey day after day. You know, I looked up um, pregnancy travel guidelines. You can look this up, right? Listen to this stuff that they tell us today. Try to limit the amount of time you're cooped up in a car, bus, or train. Keep travel time around five to six hours. Use rest stops to take short walks and to do stretches to keep the blood circulating. Drink plenty of bottled water. Or use canned juices or soft drinks as an alternative. Take your favorite pillow. Plan for plenty of rest stops, restroom breaks, and stretches. If you're, any, if you're traveling any distance, make sure to carry a copy of your prenatal records. That's us today, right? That's what we do. Mary, uh, I mean, the journey was hard, and it was long, and it was difficult. And yet, Mary's trusted, despite the fact that it was difficult despite the fact that it was difficult. I mean, you know, they have all these Christmas scents now, right? Um, uh, they even have nativity scent. I'm not sure. Seriously. Uh, yeah. Really, probably nativity scent should be shepherd sweat, dirty donkey, you know, camel dung. It's not. They sell it, and it doesn't smell like that. <laughs> you know, we created a scene that's far more pleasant, far more than it really was. And this is Mary, 15 years old, life altered, plans changed. It doesn't get any better. It gets a little bit harder. In fact, remember... Not only does she have the baby in Bethlehem, but it's not soon after that she realizes that she's got to keep running and they become fugitives. They become 
um, they, they run to Egypt all through this process. This girl who no doubt was thinking, I get to, I get to be the wife of a carpenter in a small town and it's gonna be easy, it's gonna be great, we're gonna have a bunch of kids and I'm not, all of a sudden her life is completely altered and it's made increasingly more difficult. But she chooses to trust through it all. I notice also that even she trusted despite, even though she was doubtful. You know, there's a phrase in this story that props up a lot. Mary pondered these things in her heart. And the way that word is there, and, and what the, no doubt the idea is trying to be communicated to us, is that Mary was, Mary was thinking about how these things were coming into place. And that there had been a sense of, I'm not sure how this is gonna work out. I'm not completely, you know, and as things would happen and as shepherds showed up unannounced and as all of a sudden, you know, days later, wise men show up, it's like there's doubts are being answered. And she's, she's putting it all together. But she decided to trust even though she had doubts. I think the third thing we could notice about Mary is this. She, she trusted without knowing all the details. She didn't have it figured out. You know, this is probably an issue for me. If I had been Mary, I, wanted, I would have wanted someone to fill out the big picture. What's, what is he gonna know? Uh, like, when is he gonna know that he's the son of God? How is Joseph gonna handle this? Is he gonna be the son of God straight off? All these questions, no doubt, she had, and yet she trusted despite not knowing all the details. I think of Joseph. You know, that little sentence out of Mary's mouth changed his life. And all of a sudden, no doubt, he's thinking, well, the joke's on me. Um, no doubt when she became pregnant, he must have felt an array of emotions. He was no doubt hurt and upset, devastated, crushed, humiliated, betrayed, half mad, half hurt, all these things. And yet, as the Lord spoke to him, he trusted. He trusted in the plan that God had. And I want to remind you that this couple, fragile in the scope of the way the world was. Um, you know, we, we talk about the fact that they were nobodies, and it's no, it, it is no doubt, it is true. Um, they had no tax exemption or political connection. They had the, clown of a, they had the clout of a migrant worker and the net worth of a minimum wage earner. That's who God decided to use. That's the space that God came into. That's the family that he chose to be his family. They weren't subjects for a documentary, but they weren't, can they weren't candidates for welfare either. Their life is difficult, but they're not destitute. I mean, Joseph has the means to go pay his taxes. They're in the middle. They inherit the populous world between royalty and common uh, or the, the criminal uh, side. They're literally norm 
and Norma from Normal, Ohio. Plodding into Hoham, Bethlehem in the middle of the night. No one notices them. And this is how God planned to come. And I simply just think it's important for us to grab a hold of the fact that one of the vintage truths of this story is that the trust and obedience of Mary and Joseph show us the way God always wants to move in human lives. They trusted and then they obeyed. And this is always God's way. Always God's way. And he called, he's setting the precedent here for the rest of mankind. It doesn't matter where you're from, how ordinary you are. God moves into the arena of every person. And he calls us to trust in him and what he's calling us to do. And he calls us out of that trust to then follow his leading. That's the truth, I think, for us to grab a hold of with Mary and Joseph. Just like you and me. Nothing about us, yet he calls us. And he calls us to trust us even when it's difficult, even when we have doubts, even though we don't know all the details. They did that. They did that, and look what happened. And I'm telling you, that's something we should grab onto. Trust and obedience are always God's way. Always God's way. You know what I was thinking as we were talking in worship? And the word Advent means coming, right? We're in the Advent season. He's come once, but the promise is, and the whole promise of Advent is he's coming again. He came once so that he might come twice. And you know what he calls us to do in the middle of our waiting for him to come again? To trust in him and to obey. Trust and obedience are always God's way. Father, I just pray that hopefully I've just started a little stirring that would cause us to think about Mary and Joseph's life at that time and what they went through. And Lord, honestly, you didn't make it easier for them. You made it more difficult. (laughs) Sometimes that is so true. And Lord, honestly, you didn't didn't answer all their questions and they probably lived with some doubts. And Lord, they didn't know all the details, but yet they knew you had spoken and they knew that this is what you wanted to do with their lives. Lord, you have spoken through your word to us. And Lord, you call us to trust completely, explicitly in your word and then to obey it. And Lord, when that happens, we might not be able to, obviously we're not gonna be able, we're not gonna do the same thing they did. But there is no doubt that great and wonderful and impactful things can happen through our lives if we will adopt the same kind of attitude that Mary and Joseph did. I will trust in the middle of difficulty, doubts, and Lord, I will obey what you're calling me to. Lord, challenge us with this. 
I truly believe this is what you're trying to show us in this story and why you chose them and why it came to pass the way it did. And you could have done it any way you wanted. You could have come in a palace. You could have come in a lot of, but this is the way you chose to come. What are you trying to tell us? You're trying to tell us that, that the way you want us to live is to trust and obey. Lord, help us to apply this to each part of our life and each one of our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, have a great week.